it's different every week. They move the buttons every time. <laughs> okay. Uh, good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Jamie, and I am Preachy Preacherson today, again. <laughs> but let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your peace. And we ask that you help us to hear your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're still in the season of Christmas. Okay, there's 12 days of Christmas, um, which is a, uh, it's a time of feasting. So I think we should continue, yeah, to celebrate our Savior, Jesus. Last week, I preached from the gospel uh, reading. It was Luke 2. It was about the shepherds. And, um, and the epistle from last week was from Paul's letter to Titus. And it is, it's like this really great intro to the gospel, and it's a great reminder of God's love and our response to his love. Okay, so it's Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. Okay, it's four verses. But since it's Paul writing, it's just one sentence. All right, it goes like this. Uh, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's great. That's a great gospel sentence to meditate on. Okay, because it starts off with the good news, right? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And that's the thing. The grace has to come first. Okay. And then comes our response. God sends his grace, his son Jesus, who saves us, redeems us. And then we respond, right? Verse 12 starts our list of responses, right? The grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives right now at the present. And it trains us to wait for our hope, the return of Jesus. God's grace comes first, and our response to this good news is to let it train us to live like Christ in the now and the not yet, but soon. So, so, if you were looking for something to meditate on for the new year, may I suggest these verses from Paul's letter to Titus, because what a great start. Now, in our collect today, what did we as the church pray for? Um, yeah. We acknowledged uh, that God the Father gave his son a holy name, a name set apart for him, and it's a sign of our salvation, right? Jesus means Yahweh saves. So we acknowledge this gift, this grace from God. And then we, as the church, ask God to plant the love of our Savior into every heart. Did we mean it? Right? Or did we just say it because it was on the screen? Because it's a bold and dangerous prayer. And I hope we meant it. 
And the epistle reading for this week comes from Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And Paul writes this letter to this church while he's in prison. And you can tell that he really loves this fellowship of believers, right? They bring him joy. And he refers to them as partners, okay? In chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, he says, I always pray with joy when I pray for you all because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So they're faithful. And if you read the whole letter, you can tell that this church is fairly mature, right? He calls them partners, and they've sent him a gift, some kind of aid um, to him in prison, and he accepts it, you know. And if you remember, he wouldn't accept payment or gifts from the Corinthian church. But with this church, there's no such boundary. And the whole letter, you know, it's pretty typical of Paul. He prays for the church, encourages them. And of course, there's always a little bit of correction and then a lot of bragging on Jesus. And he calls for unity in the church. And he explains how to achieve it. You know, and how do you achieve it? You imitate Christ. But first, he prays for this church, and his prayer is, is so cool. It's um, chapter 1, verse 9. He says, this is what I'm praying, that your love may overflow still more and more in knowledge and in all wisdom. Then you will be able to tell the difference between good and evil and be sincere and faultless on the day of the Messiah, filled to overflowing with the fruit of right living fruit that comes through King Jesus to God's glory and praise. And I thought that was a really cool prayer because he prays for their love. But then it kind of hit me. He's praying for their love to have more knowledge and wisdom. And you know, when I think of love, those aren't two words that come to my mind first. And uh, so I was really thinking about it, and then, and then I checked. Okay, then I checked. And the love word that Paul uses here is agape, of course. And um, the best definition for agape love that I know of comes from C.S. Lewis. And he says, it is a selfless love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. And every time, this cuts me right in two. Selfless love, passionately committed to the well-being, the shalom of others. And now passionately committed doesn't mean that you're a big fan of the well-being of others, okay? And it doesn't mean that you feel strongly in favor for the well-being of others. It means that you are willing to suffer for the well-being of others. So it's like Paul is saying, anyway, I've been praying for more and more knowledge and wisdom in your selfless love, more knowledge and more wisdom in your willingness to suffer for the well-being of others. And now, you know, I'm like, what? <laughs> what did he just pray for? More wisdom, more insight to recognize good and evil, to be more aware of who to love and how to love to see more opportunities to willingly suffer for others? What? 
to see more responsibility, to recognize when you're not doing it, more self-awareness of when you're holding back your love, more insight when you refuse to suffer for the well-being of others. And this is too much. This is overwhelming, and this is cruel. And this is exactly how Jesus Christ loves us all. And that's why Paul prayed it. It's the only way to live a gospel life, right? To have the Savior's love planted in our hearts means we accept his grace first and then respond with our whole life. In chapter 2, Paul goes on to show the church how Jesus responded with his whole life. And in verses 1 through 4, he encourages the church to be unified with Christ, to have the same mindset as Christ, to be humble, and to submit to one another. Now, for a church to be unified with Christ, it doesn't mean that, like, the pastor has the mindset of Christ, and then everyone follows the pastor, right? That is not how this works. The mindset of Christ, it's not a chain of command, okay? The pastor has the mind of Christ, and then you have the mind of Christ. And when we all have that, it's just one line. It's just one line. When, when we have that, then we are unified. In verse 5, he says, And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he shows them Christ's mindset in this wonderful poem. Starting at verse 6, Jesus who being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul wants the church to have the mindset of Christ. Jesus is God, he's equal to God, and yet he made himself low, nothing. He became a human servant, and he humbled himself, and he obeyed the Father's will, and he allowed himself to be captured and killed, and he died a criminal's death that he did not deserve. And he didn't do it for himself. He did it for others, for us. And the church, us, we can have the mindset of Christ if we're willing to become a servant, right? If we're willing to obey our Father's will, if we're willing to be humble like Jesus. And Jesus obeyed completely. And Paul shows us how God responded to that, right? God raised Jesus to the highest place. And he set apart his holy name. And it's a name that every knee and tongue will honor, 
And Paul honors this name in this poem when he ends it with Jesus Christ as Lord. It's a brave thing to claim, and at that time, it's the kind of thing that gets you locked up in prison. Because the emperor is considered to be the Lord. And you know, to be the emperor, you had to be a conqueror. You had to take every advantage you could get. And Philippi, where this church was, you know, it was a place that had another name before Philip II of Macedonia came along and conquered it and named it for himself. And how's that for glory? And we do the same thing, don't we? Like we name our towns and our buildings and our streets after folks that we think are worthy. There was a school down the street named after General Forrest. And he was the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. Seems like a problematic choice. Are we that starved to honor someone? Are we so confused about who is worthy? You know, one day we won't be. One day every knee and tongue will honor the most worthy name. Anyway, back to Philippi. Hundreds of years later, when Rome is in charge of this part of Greece, it's still called Philippi. But there's been several Roman emperors, and all of them have called themselves Lord or the Son of God. And then, you know, after Rome took that city over from Macedonia, they colonized it with their own soldiers, right? They're like veterans, they're retired soldiers. So this place would be full of people who supposedly know who was Lord, right? And it's not a dead Jewish carpenter. But this faithful church knew, okay? They believed that Christ was Lord. They were partners in the gospel. They participated in sharing the good news. And still, Paul prays more. More knowledge and more wisdom in your love more wisdom and insight in your selfless love so that you can love like your Savior, so you can have the mindset of Christ, not the mindset of an earthly ruler who has to take every advantage that he can get in order to conquer and hold on to his reign with everything he has and still get assassinated. He says have the mindset of Christ, the actual Son of God, who doesn't take advantage of that, but turns lordship upside down to become a human servant, so humble that he pours himself out until he is empty for others. So humble he obeys God to the cross and beyond. This is the love our Savior has for us all. And this is the love that we ask God to plant in every heart, including our own. 
I hope we meant it. And if this feels like it's impossible, okay, if it's impossible for us to love with this wise agape love, and for sitting there kind of feeling convicted or guilty, well, it might be because you've forgotten that God's grace comes first. And then our response. If we try to do this without God's grace, if we try to do this out of our own love, then we're going to be just like those emperors, right? Just white-knuckling our own lordship, doomed from the start. But through God's saving grace, through the gift of his son, we can let him train us to have the mindset of Christ, right? And we can let him train us to love like Jesus. We can let him train us to pray bold, dangerous prayers like Paul. And we can bravely proclaim the gospel that Jesus is Lord. Amen.